in my mind, there will be steadily growing adoption of similar systems and appreciation for similar systems because we've seen for far too long how TradFi and CFI related systems are actually vulnerable to changes in the market dynamics and not being able to catch up to those changes. You're listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Herva, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here today because there is a topic that I'd like to pick your brain on that you are very well versed in, and it's around CFI versus DeFi. Now, before we get into the specifics of that, what it is, what it means, the difference, we always like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your journey. So please walk us through where you started to where you are now. Sure. And thank you so much for having me uh, on your podcast today, Carissa. Uh, it's, it's quite, it's, it's my pleasure. My professional journey here started back in India, you know, several years ago where I, where I originally started my career as a software engineer and then pivoted into uh, strategy consulting. Uh, but the more, more interesting bits of my, uh, of my career was more around when I started dabbling in startups and started building uh, an e-commerce business, um, you know, along with the, the founders uh, of a company called Snapdeal. Um, and Snapdeal was one of India's uh, earliest e-commerce unicorns that started there about a decade ago and uh, has grown quite quite rapidly since then. Uh, it, it dramatically changed um, the e-commerce landscape in that market. Uh, from there, I sort of moved into Australia uh, for personal reasons. I moved with my family. Um, and I started working with um, the founders at Catch, uh, both Gabby and Hesse, to build one of Australia's earliest uh, native e-commerce marketplaces, uh, which was the Catch Marketplace. Uh, that, of course, uh, was a very, very interesting learning experience for me uh, because that was the first time I was sort of working in Australia and learning everything about the Australian market from there. Uh, subsequently, I spent some time uh, building shipping uh, for eBay in, in the region. So I was working uh, very closely with uh, the APAC partners uh, for eBay. Uh, and then subsequently, I started working with founders at a company called Sendu, um, that is direct competitors with Australia Post in the Australian market, but also expanded into, into North America with Canada and US more recently, uh, where uh, they're disrupting the traditional uh, shipping ecosystem. Uh, and so Sendl is one of the world's, you know, first carbon neutral shipping platforms and has been uh, 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 really an innovative product for the e-commerce players. So I work very closely with the founders, James, Craig, and Sean from its very early days um, uh, to expand Sendles TAM as much as we could. So that was a really, really interesting and a joyous experience for me. That brings my story to where I am at today, which is uh, I'm sort of general manager at Blockerna. And Blockerna is, of course, a blockchain-focused company that's building the future of finance, uh, you know, ground up. Uh, we are also calling it Banking 2.0, uh, built on blockchain rails. So I'm quite excited to talk about that today. Wow. I love your journey. I went to India two years ago before lockdown. I absolutely loved it. And how did you find transitioning? I mean, because India is such a big place. And the thing that's interesting about India is like they produce more software engineers than I think we have people in Australia. So I'm really curious to like understand like what was it like going from India where you got 1.3 billion people to a place as tiny as Australia where it's like 26 million people here? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really interesting question. I, frankly, I've not been asked that before. Uh, so it's, it's almost getting me to think about uh, back in the day. It's, it's been almost nine years now since I've moved. So I'm trying to reflect on, uh, you know, my early days of trying to settle in and sort of feel in, uh, you know, the environment, take a feeling of, of the, the changes. Uh, I think more than just the number of people, I think culturally as well, we are very different countries um, uh, and we have uh, you know sort of very different challenges in both these markets so, um, uh, I think initially it was quite challenging to really understand the value system um, and really trying to understand you know what are the problems worth solving in, in in the cultural context and what are the problems worth sort of living with if you think if you reflect on your journey to India you would see you know there are a lot lot of issues that would appear to be issues to us uh, coming from a developed market or a developed world 
where you know an average Indian would just ignore that because those are lower down the priority list of issues that already exist, right? And so this element of must-have and nice-to-have that differs dramatically when you go from economies like India uh, into economies uh, that are more developed uh, in some sense, or or you could call it even some of some of the more uh, sort of affluent economies like Australia, uh, and that that directly impacts the way in which people make decisions, right? And I've found that that transition very fascinating on how value systems completely change as a result of that. So, for instance, to give you a very simple example, uh, you know, I was still building e-commerce in India, and then I moved to Australia and started building e-commerce here. And what I realized in India, one of the key factors for uh, creating an e-commerce business was pricing. Uh, it always had to be the lowest cost product, no matter what. And in Australia, I think brand and pricing would were together equally important. So you couldn't just, you know, you couldn't just sell low cost products. It had to be branded. So there is an element of quality and an element of brand that Australians associate with the base bare minimum. Whereas in India, I think the necessities are such that people would happily sort of settle for uh, the least cost or alternative for anything. Yeah, I I hear exactly what you're saying. I'm aware of that that difference. And that's a great point that you raise. I mean, yeah, I mean, when I was there, so many things were just wild. Like I went to New Delhi and there was just so, I had never seen that many human beings in such a small like area uh, as well as like you just drive wherever, which I found incredibly stressful. It was just like hectic because I was thinking, oh my gosh, like how do people get around here? And then I remember ex- I remember talking about like with the guys because I went there part work, part vacation and I was talking to some of the guys and they were just killing themselves laughing because I was just like shocked like oh my gosh that man just walked out in like 12 lanes of traffic I've never seen that before it wasn't a very measured approach and they're like oh that's like a standard thing here KV and I'm thinking oh my gosh like little things like that that I hadn't seen before just really threw me I guess and you know when I was when I came back to Australia telling people they're like they were just saying you're perspective is so interesting about India and yeah so people who are from India friends that live uh, you know that are from India live in Australia they were just they were just cackling because they're like just the way you you talk about it KB in this way that you were so shocked by everything that's so normal there and I um yeah I guess it was such a great place to go because it just opened my eyes up and um a really great you know, smart people, capable people. I understand what you're saying with, you know, the bottom dollar. And that's one of the things that I wanted to change when I got back. And it's still part of my my vision. And I'm, we're going slightly off tangent here, but I think this is important. You said before about price. And one of the things in Australia or in the Western world is like, oh, India, we just think IT outsource, it's all about price. And that's fundamentally not true. And I, I spoke to a guy that was like, oh, yeah, we're developing all this software for like NASA or something like that. And I just thought you don't hear about those stories. So I wanted to change the lens in which people viewed India as. They're a big nation with a lot of capability. And I think that sometimes it's overlooked a lot of the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, look, I mean, you know, just sort of jumping in and vehemently agreeing with that. I think, you know, one thing I found fascinating is, um, you know, because of the way history has been and because of the way, you know, we've sort of, uh, you know, as a country sort of, uh, you know, really aligned ourselves more with uh, sort of Western European and and some of the American, um, you know, style of politics and, and, and the journey. Uh, I think we've sort of overlooked the Asian story a little bit here in Australia uh, or, or and, and it's not just us. I think there are lots of parts of the world. Um, where where we sort of miss out on the nuances and some of those stories, and especially India, which uh, in 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 a way it's one of the most unique countries in the world, right? Uh, there is there is levels of poverty that is similar to sub-Saharan Africa that exists in India, but at the same time, you also have uh, the most number of doctors, the most number of engineers, a very robust space science space program that comes out of India. Uh, it's got a very uh, uh, more recently, so a very fledgling, um, uh, you know, uh, cutting edge defense programs uh, that's coming out of India. So it's, there are very few countries in the world that can have such stark contrast 
exist simultaneously in the same ecosystem and in the same world. I mean, the fact that you're talking about a similar, the same country, and you're saying that it probably has more software engineers than you know the entire population of Australia, that speaks volumes about the starkness of of that place and and how underappreciated and often misunderstood uh, these differences are. Oh, I know. And everyone's got like 50 degrees. I don't even have one. So I feel incredibly unqualified half the time. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I love this. This is awesome. I could definitely do a whole episode on that. But that's not the reason why I wanted you to come on the show today. I want you to talk about CeFi versus DeFi. Now, I think people either don't know about this at all. So I'm keen for you to explain like what it is and what the difference is, but then also maybe like the changing landscape and what you're sort of seeing with your experience. Sure. Very passionate about this topic and I can talk about CFI, DeFi, and maybe if I can um, introduce a third term that typically gets used or, you know, often is TradFi, which is traditional finance, which is your existing banking system, um, just so we are not confusing CFI with TradFi. Um, so uh, let's dive straight into it. So uh, if you look at um, the traditional banking system uh, that we are all a part of and we've been using for decades now, um, uh, you, you know, they're, they're by definition are largely centralized themselves. Right. Um, so a lot of the banking we do are with specific banks. Uh, they have their own rules. They have their own boards, and they have their own executives. And they make their uh, they make their policies. They decide on the interest rates, and then they sort of go from there. And uh, we as consumers uh, benefit or suffer as a result of those policies. Um, and those are, of course, are governed by local government based uh, mandates and policies and regulations um, and, and so on. Uh, so by nature, traditional finance has been quite centralized and has been sort of governed by a handful of folks who are in at the helm, um, you know, in these banks. Um, CFI, in, interestingly, is not exactly tradition, like traditional finance, uh, but it, a bit of an abstraction of traditional finance in the sense that they're still... St- they are also centralized. Um, you know, there are there are companies that use blockchain technology out there, but still make decisions similar to how traditional finance financial institutions make decisions. Um, they still uh, operate in very similar ways as traditional banking institutions, and uh, you know some of these companies do. Um, but but at the same time, um, uh, they essentially use technology that is more recently developed like blockchain or decentralized finance related products uh, that are out there. Uh, and I'm happy to qualify these, you know, as we go along. Um, so for the time being, for your listeners, um, the way to think about it is there are three broad buckets. Um, the one bit is tr- the traditional finance. Uh, and within the blockchain ecosystem, there is CFI and DeFi. And CFI mimics the traditional finance in the way decisions are made. And DeFi, interestingly, is pretty much, to a large extent, quite quite independent, uh, quite autonomous. Um, in the DeFi ecosystem, um, pretty much all the key decisions that are made are made by algorithms and smart contracts that are pre-coded um, and sort of sit within the protocol. Uh, and so people who sign up for any any specific type of DeFi product or a protocol, they're, they're required to be well aware of, um, you know, what the promises are of that particular DeFi protocol. And therefore, uh, you know, changes to those protocols are not very easy to be made. Um, so pe- people can come in, they sign up for it. They know exactly what they're getting. Uh, there is no human intervention. There's no human biases that govern those protocols. And as a result of that, you sort of, uh, get a very objective decision-making process when it comes to the DeFi side of things. Now, just so we're clear, you mean TradFi as in like a big Australian bank? Is that what you're? Is that what you're along the lines you're thinking? That is correct. Every traditional bank is part of the traditional finance, and that's again. I'm sorry, I threw, I added this new terminology in the middle just because. Uh, there have been times when people have confused CFI for traditional finance because of the similarities. So can you give me an example of a CFI type solution? Because so, so TradFi, obviously, we're thinking your big banks, people are familiar with them. What about CFI? 
Sure. So, um, you know, uh, one of the examples of a CFI type solution that has been ma- making the news lately um, and, you know, has been, you know, unfortunately in news for, uh, you know, some of the more controversial reasons uh, is a company called Celsius, for instance. Uh, right. And so that's a CFI type solution where you have a, you know, you have a, you, you have a business that's being run by, uh, you know, uh, a team and they have uh, their executive team um, and they make pretty much all the decisions about their strategy and how they're going to run their business uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, while Celsius uh, uses cryptocurrency and various digital assets as their underlying asset and some of the platforms and rails that they've built are in the blockchain space, um, they do mimic a lot of the decision-making frameworks and a lot of the strategies that traditional financial institutions, aka banks, uh, employ on a day-to-day basis. So Celsius is a great example of a C5 product out there. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So I'm going to get my terms right. So from your experience, Aperva, what are some of the benefits from a TradFi solution versus a DeFi because they're total opposite ends of the spectrum. I'm keen to know, yeah, a little bit more about that because I think people are still stressed out by all these concepts. Maybe not TradFi. The fact that I'm now saying TradFi um, is wonderful. So I think people are overwhelmed by all of this stuff. Yeah, and look, uh, I mean, it's quite understandable, uh, you know, that people do feel overwhelmed by these, uh, you know, by these terminologies and especially uh, some of the technologies um, that that sort of revolve around these. Um, it's early days. It's it's quite understandable that people who haven't dabbled in this space uh, don't fully understand this. Uh, and uh, it's okay to take a little bit of time to familiarize yourself, uh, you know, with these tech terms and with these technologies and. Uh, it will take its due time. So uh, going back to your question, um, you know, the difference between TradFi and DeFi, which like you rightly pointed out, are ba- basically the two ends of the spectrum at the moment for, for the purpose of this conversation. So, well, um, uh, DeFi, as I pointed out earlier, is decentralized, right? TradFi, um, A, being traditional, it's centralized in nature. Uh, the benefits of centralization, the benefits of centralization is that, uh, uh, you know, TradFi can make decisions quickly within themselves. Uh, and at the same time, um, you know, once they sort of get something right, uh, they are able to scale quickly. Um, uh, the disadvantages really of what we've seen with the traditional financial system over the last few decades uh, that has played out over the last few decades is that we've learned the hard way that often fewer people in a closed room uh, making decisions um, do not necessarily make, you know, the right decision for the masses. Um, you know, they often tend to act in the interest of the people in the room uh, or a, a, a fewer handful of stakeholders. Um, uh, often some of the repercussions of these decisions can have wide impact. It, you know, I'm sort of referring to some of the financial crisis that we've seen in the last couple of decades uh, that have often hit us uh, without people really knowing uh, why uh, those situations arose in the first place. And that was largely to do with, uh, you know, uh, processes and checks and balances or the lack of checks and balances as a result of the, the, the sort of the traditional financial systems. On the other end of the spectrum, if you start looking at DeFi, uh, by definition, uh, when a DeFi protocol or a DeFi product is made, um, everything about the product needs to be made public. Um, they're, they're required to open it up, uh, openly talk about what are the rules, what are the uh, rules of the game, uh, if I may call it that, uh, what are the ways in which that particular protocol is going to behave, uh, what are the decision-making laws? Who are the benefactors? Who, has, who, who is going to be sort of impacted by those decisions and so on? And based on those principles uh, and open source, um, uh, you, uh, you know, open source codes, uh, folks who are investing in these DeFi pl- protocols and platforms are able to then make well-informed decisions around whether they want to further go ahead and make those investments um, or not, and if they want to participate in that protocol based on the rules of the game. And one thing worth pointing out is 
these rules that are laid down very clearly are often very difficult to change once they are laid out because um, uh, decentralized finance or DeFi-related protocols often then uh, have to include every participant that is participating um, into sort of a voting mechanism to make sure that then any of the changes that go onto the DeFi platform are permitted to go through uh, based on the consensus uh, sort of derived out of uh, the pool of people who are agreeing to the DeFi protocol. So, so participants play a big role in making those changes. So you can't just change the protocol after people have started participating in it. Whereas in case of uh, traditional finance, uh, you know, the decision-making is quite opaque and you don't really know what's going on and things can change quite easily uh, once a bunch of people have decided what needs to happen there. Wow, this is where it gets really, really interesting. So if we go back on a TradFi, now I've worked in a bank myself, won't they just be upholstered by the government? So are they ever going to be superseded by a DeFi or a CeFi solution or is it just going to be like, oh, well, you know, we've had these banks for hundreds of years and they're here to stay forever. So what is going to happen? Wow, <laughs> that's a really hard question to answer. I mean, I wish I I was nearly as accurate about uh you know things that have happened in the past to be able to look at the future, but you know, you know, there are some hypotheses, right? Um, uh, if you look at people who are dabbling in DeFi uh, at the moment, uh, or who are who are who are, you know folks who are, who are in the blockchain finance space, um, uh, I think a lot of us are working with a hypothesis that uh, there are, on the one hand, we understand there are limitations and there are challenges with traditional finance or you know centralized type. Uh, institutions, um, and with the with the with the advent of technology and with uh, improvement in ways in which we are able to communicate with each other and store data and be able to do things, um, you know, in the last 25, 30 years, uh, we also understand that some of these shortcomings of traditional finance that very rightly so existed because you know it was hard to solve for up until recently. Uh, don't necessarily need to exist in the future because there are ways in which we could create technology and overcome these challenges, uh, you know, as we go forward. And and with these two understandings, uh, folks who are building uh, solutions in the DeFi space or in the blockchain finance space are trying to come together with various, uh, you know, kind of solutions that actually start chipping away on the uh, chipping away on the challenges that have sort of uh, you know, touched upon just a little while back about some of the traditional finance-related issues. So, in doing so, what's going to happen in the future? Well, you know, there are some extreme ways of thinking about the future, where you say, you know, gradually uh, a better system will uh, completely uh, overtake uh, an inefficient and a uh, you know uh, sort of. Uh, you know, a, a less corrupt, uh, a sort of, sort of a more corrupt system. Um, the other way to look at it is, uh, I think a better solution will force existing systems to actually change and make improvements to the system in such a way that actually net net we'll just have better systems on both on the traditional finance side of things and on the DeFi side of things. And at the same time, we will just start to carve out more space for uh, a futuristic technology to come and do things more efficiently. Uh, one example, if I may uh, you know, take, is from an industry that I come from, uh, which is the e-commerce and the retail industry. Uh, and I think in very early days of retail, I think there was a similar doubt and similar question that uh, you know, we used to get asked that, hey, if e-commerce is going to come on board and start to disrupt retail, uh, do you see e-commerce completely killing retail in a way where everything would be bought online and you'll really never have any need for physical retail space. And, you know, yes, in an extreme case, that might happen. Uh, but I think in, in reality, what we are seeing is uh, there is more optionality being built as a result of e-commerce and there are more specific use cases uh, where e-commerce is more relevant is starting to shine. And uh, it's just net net become a much more beneficial world for a retail consumer. So in a similar sense, if you were to extrapolate that uh, industry example and take it uh, into uh, blockchain finance and how will blockchain finance uh, carve out 
the financial system in the future, I think it'll sort of create a little bit more space for itself and for people who understand and who see value in that and who have need for elements that blockchain finance brings to the table will start to actually uh, use it more often than not. And you'll see market share shift towards 100% traditional finance to, you know, some share, some distribution of that between CeFi, DeFi and TradFi. Okay, there's a lot of things in there. So in your mind, what are some of the challenges that TradFi companies encounter? So so, so there are several, uh, you know, small and big challenges that we can think about, um, you know, when it comes to TradFi, right? Uh, to begin with, um, let's say, you know, if I were to take a most, more recent example, right? Um, uh, because of the way we've structured our economy and because of the way in which uh, traditional banking and traditional financial systems sort of interact with each other. And it's actually no fault of any particular bank or it's no fault of any particular institution per se. Uh, I, I think there is a structural issue with uh, you know how some of these things haven't been able to keep up with the pace of change globally. Uh, what's starting to happen is you know, in the last few months, we we, we saw this firsthand. Uh, traditionally, you were able to, you know, if you were a saver, you were able to save money, keep it into your bank account, uh, get a decent yield or a return on, on that saving. And, and, you know, essentially without taking much risk, be able to essentially keep up with, uh, you know, the inflation rate in such a way that your money doesn't sort of dilute significantly over a period of time. And if you if you had a bit of a risk appetite, you could take a portion of that money, go into the stock market or go into some of the other investment grade products and park your money there and then be able to uh, you know, generate some kind of a yield that allows you to be a little bit better off um, than inflation in the market and so on. Right. Um, in the last few years, in the way in which centralized decision making uh, has worked, uh, especially starting, you know, with the great, um, you know, with the with, with the global financial crisis, you know, starting two thousand eight, two thousand nine, um, we started to see that I think a lot of these uh, sensible logic around how uh, there is a correlation between savings, uh, the interest you earn from your bank account, and uh, inflation, and how much risk you're required to take to be able to keep up with uh, purchasing power uh, you know, in the market, we started to see that there's a lot of decoupling that's happening in this space. Um, uh, you know, as a result of that, uh, you, could be, you could have a bank account, which is yielding you virtually nothing. Uh, yet, if you want to go and get uh, you know, a loan for some kind of a consumer product or some kind of uh, you know, a service that you require, you might have to pay a significantly higher cost, which is, of course, the banking uh, model in itself. And at the same time, if you're a saver, uh, you're as a result of high inflation in the economy, you're almost forced to actually save nothing and put pretty much everything and forced to invest in riskier assets that often fluctuate. So as you can start to see, even houses uh, and house prices are starting to go down as a result of last couple of quarters and the ways ways in which the um, uh, uh, you know in in which the Federal Reserve and the US, uh, and the reserve banks are raising interest rates. So there is structural issues that we're starting to see come up to the fore uh, when it comes to the traditional financial systems and how people are able to manage their money in the traditional financial systems. Um, and so, so some of these things uh, with the limitations and in the way we've designed it, uh, you know, basically creates a very hard space for retail and um, you know, small investors who don't have access to global financial ecosystems and who don't necessarily have, uh, you know, the know-how to be able to navigate some of these uh, very challenging times. So do you think that potentially a TradFi company could just invent their own DeFi solution? Because they're like, okay, cool. We see where the market's going. We see where people are headed. We can't really compete with a DeFi because, again, like, you know, legacy system, like, you know, it's just too hard. Like, you may as well just keep it there as is and then build something on the side. Do you think that's a very real possibility? Uh, that's a very interesting hypothetical question. So um, if I may, like, I'll, I'll take a step back and go, look, by definition, DeFi is not managed, uh, right? Like, it's sort of, you know, there are rules that 
people lay down and then say, okay, these are the rules we've laid down. Uh, this is how we're going to work. It's a smart contract. It's already sort of coded in. It's a, it's it's quite automated in that sense. And then, um, you know, once it's sort of laid down, then people say, okay, I like what you're saying. I like how you do things. Therefore, I'm going to invest in this. Uh, I don't like what you're saying. I don't like what you're doing. Therefore, I'm not going to invest in this. And therefore, by nature, uh, by the law of averages and by law of nature of that particular definition, that that DeFi protocol that is not appealing will gradually die a slow death. And the, the, the protocol that is appealing will actually you know, start growing, uh, but it's sort of hard-coded into its existence, right? So it cannot really change. So hypothetically, if a TradFi business went down the path of creating a DeFi protocol, I think they would probably have to do it out of goodness of the heart uh, because they will... They will die a slow death. Is that what you're saying? No, I mean by by definition of de, by the true definition of DeFi, they wouldn't be able to control it. So they can create it and leave it out there. And if it is not truly DeFi, it'll die a slow death. And if it is truly DeFi and it brings value to the ecosystem, then people would invest in it. But at the same time, they would just be just another shareholder as a creator, as anyone else, as part of it. They wouldn't necessarily be able to govern it the way that are able to govern traditional financial institutions. Yeah, sure. Totally understand that. What about more, if you roll it back for a second, uh, so a, a, a trad five versus a, like a C fine, do you think that maybe they could start to invent something there or? Yeah. So I think that's where it becomes more interesting. I think you could see, um, you know, traditional financial institutions and systems starting to actually mimic some of the C5 products because in reality, let's say if a, if an actual bank today started to uh, create products that were uh, built on crypto or built on blockchain finance um, and started to sort of separate them a little bit from their own, um, you know, core banking, uh, core banking systems, uh, I think they might be able to create what looks like a CFI product, and they might actually be able to do it successfully uh, because that allows users. Uh, you know, some of the qualities of what uh, what you're seeing as complete, pure CeFi products out there already. So, so there could be a good balance that traditional financial institutions can actually find if they were to dabble into CeFi-related, uh, you know, ecosystems. But I think DeFi is, as you said, a bit far, far out, far, far out from an uh, outreach standpoint. Yeah, most definitely. I agree with you there. So you said before... Uh, potentially some DeFi, you know, has died a slow death. Have you seen much of that? Like, have you seen like that happen or like, has it sort of fizzled out quite quickly or like, what have you sort of seen with your experience in the space? Yeah. So uh, while I can't really think of a name immediately off the top of my head, uh, and that's also probably because the ones that die are not very popular. uh, And so there are sort of like smaller projects that, uh, you know, take shape, they're born, and then very quickly realize that their shortcomings or they're not as efficient from a scaling standpoint, and they don't. But uh, to your point, um, and to my earlier point, yes, uh, I think DeFi projects often, you know, sort of go into nothingness if they are not adding significant value. And there is a natural selection built into that ecosystem, uh, which is uh, which is the beauty of, of the DeFi ecosystem, right? So there have been several such projects in the last few years that have been made, uh, then scale, just exist or linger and nobody really cares about them and that's fine. So DeFi solutions that don't add a lot of value, how do you quantify or qualify if something's adding value? So for instance, uh, you know, one of the one of the DeFi solutions that we uh, at Blockerner, uh, you know, sort of integrate with and work with is called Aave. Right. And, um, you know, it's, it's one of those protocols where you are able to uh, lend and borrow uh, uh, using uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, and then uh, essentially, uh, you know, they sort of marry the lenders and borrowers in, in, in that protocol. Uh, so the value created there is if you were if you needed uh, liquidity or money, to fund uh, one of your needs, you could go to Aave, uh, secure that with a collateral and be able to essentially get some kind of a loan uh, back for you to fulfill your need uh, and in turn pay an interest rate to them. And and Aave would then pay that out 
to the lender who's coming onto the platform and registering themselves as a lender uh, and is willing to lend out at a certain interest rate. So by definition, this particular protocol uh, matches lenders and borrowers and creates value by essentially satisfying the need of the borrower uh, in a decentralized way. And so do you think the value does vary depending on what people are looking for specifically, or do you say that the value is sort of generally like the same thing? Uh, I think value can completely vary from from platform to platform and people's needs, right? So in this, in the Aave example that I just gave you, uh, the value generation is highly valuable to a borrower and a lender, uh, but may not be valuable to anyone else who's not borrowing or lending at the moment, right? So, so that particular platform predominantly tries to cater to borrowing and lending related activities only. Similarly, there could be, um, you know, DeFi related projects that are out there. That, uh, you know, unfortunately, at the moment, we are so early on in the stage that a lot of the protocols uh, are doing some form of financial transaction in the DeFi space. And, you know, not surprising because it's also called decentralized finance. So they're financial related uh, transactions, but uh, but they could be value generated in other ways. So for instance, hypothetically speaking, you could have a DeFi platform um, that let's say potentially starts giving a score for people's projects. So you could essentially come and say, hey, I want to you know, to, you can you can go onto the platform as a borrower and say, "Hey, I want to start a little coffee shop. Uh, this is my value proposition. This is my uh, credit score, and blah blah blah." And the protocol could evaluate you, give you a score, and then th- uh, allows lenders to sort of you know lend you on that behalf. And so, in that sense, the value generation there would be a little bit different from how Aave you know does that because in this case you don't need collaterals. In this scenario, you would need a credit score to be able to you know, borrow from that. So at the moment, a lot of the value proposition that I'm talking about in the DeFi space are in the financial ecosystem. But theoretically speaking, as more experiments and more more engineers start playing with these projects and products, uh, you could actually start seeing spillover into other applications in the world, which may be loosely associated with financial applications, but to a large extent can actually spill over into just other real life needs. So that is an interesting um observation and i totally do agree with you and what was kind of my mind is like credit scores i think like you know equifax and those types of things i I do hear what you're saying so i can relate to that you mentioned before we obviously are still quite early on in terms of the the defined from your perspective there's no right or wrong answers it's more so just your opinion uh, and what you've seen in the space And as you know, with anything sort of new towards like DeFi and the adoption and things that we're doing differently, it's always a little bit harder because people haven't seen it before. They don't know what to expect. What do you believe the appetite towards DeFi will be? As in from a a global adoption standpoint? Yes, most definitely. Yeah, uh, I think very interestingly, Carissa, I think what we've seen in the last few months play out has actually made a very strong case for, uh, you know, DeFi, uh, in, in my opinion, right? So uh, let me qualify that a little bit more. So uh, if, if you've been monitoring what's happening in the global equity um, and uh, crypto, and for that matter, most of the asset-related markets, uh, what you've started to see is um, uh, the knock-on effect of, of this kind of deleveraging that's going on in most of uh, the markets is that there is a, you know, asset prices are dropping uh, quite substantially across the board, whether it's, you know, house prices or commodities or, or like certain commodities um, uh, for that matter, uh, stocks and crypto assets as well. Um, and as a result of that, what happens is if there are collaterals that have been being given out as collaterals to borrow from that, those values have gone down. And as a result of that, there has been margin calls uh, that borrowers uh, have had to face with. And as a result of that, what we saw was some unwinding in some of the CFI and the TradFi spots where, uh, you know, you heard news about CFI related products that were starting to get into trouble because they had lock-ins and contracts that they, they couldn't get out of and uh, asset prices fell quite dramatically and they were sort of stuck with assets that were not as valuable as they thought, you know, uh, about a month ago. Um, Similarly, similar uh, unwinding started happening in, 
you know, various other industries. Uh, we've heard about, you know, several, you know, real estate and, uh, you know, builders are getting into trouble as a result of that because, you know, they have, you know, big uh, sort of financial uh you know, costs to incur and they're not able to sort of back that up with projects and profitability there, so on and so forth. Whereas in the backdrop of all this chaos that's been happening in the financial markets and in most of the other, uh, you know, asset markets, interestingly, DeFi has just essentially remained unscathed. There is not one major DeFi protocol that has majorly impacted, uh, has been impacted by any of these um you know, deleveraging related events. And that's largely because uh, they've been built in a way that transparently talks about how they are going to react in real time to some of these deleveraging events, right? So for instance, you know, just going back to the example of Aave that I gave you earlier, uh, you know, at a time when there were a lot of borrowers and wanted to do a lot of trades uh, or wanted to, uh, you know, go ahead and borrow for a lot of different reasons. Uh, the interest rates on the, these platforms that they were offering for lenders, uh, you know, jumped as high as 15, 16% uh, APY. Um, and more recently, when, you know, markets started cooling down and asset prices started coming down and demand for, uh, you know, some of these borrowings sort of went down, interest rates in real time adjusted and dropped as low as one and a half percent. And if you look at what traditional finance and CFI related markets do, they actually often, you know, inefficiently adjust to real-time demand. They take a longer time to react to real-time demand. And that means that creates that inefficiencies in the market where people are actually making, uh, you know, often caught making wrong decisions for a longer period of time because they're looking at the numbers and not really looking at the market and the pure demand and supply. So, so in some ways, you know, cutting the long story short there, I think in some ways DeFi has uh, to a large extent weathered the storm really well and proven its its metal in this in this particular, uh, you, you know, scenario. And as a result of that, what you're going to start to see is, um, you know, economists, uh, people in the financial space starting to take note of this and starting to actually really learn from what are the benefits of actually uh, building systems that are more DeFi-like, if not exactly, you know, DeFi. Uh, And in my mind, there will be steadily growing adoption of similar systems and appreciation for similar systems, because we've seen for far too long how TradFi and CFI-related systems are actually vulnerable to changes in the market dynamics and not being able to catch up to those changes. Wow. Okay. Do you still think, though, that it's going to take some time to get that adoption because like I said, like I, I still do believe that people are overwhelmed. They're not really sure what all this means and they've only really ever known a, a TradFi solution. And so now it's really going to change the game. And when you're dealing with like people's finances and money and like it's even going to be more perhaps people still hanging on to the ledge and they don't want to let it go. Do you think that DeFi will become mainstream or do you think there'll be pockets of things like you said economists and people you know in the financial markets game will adopt this but perhaps your everyday person just won't yeah uh, i i really like the way you sort of put that question right and if you sort of distinguish the two broader audiences for something like DeFi, right one is the let's say to oversimplify it let's just call it the retail audience that is everyday aussies or everyday global citizens uh, and then, you know, sort of professional finance people or institutions in some ways, right? Um, uh, I think what's interesting is you're starting to see um, you're starting to see the understanding of DeFi trickle into uh, institutional side of things already. I think people are starting to educate themselves. Uh, professionals are starting to have a general understanding. I mean, the fact that you and I are talking about this and this will then be heard by hundreds and and maybe you know, thousands and thousands of people, uh, you know, over time, I think, um, you know, you know, is a validation that I think there is interest in the space and people are starting to wrap their head around this already. Um, I think the retail side will, for a very long time, find this complicated, uh, will for a very long time, not necessarily directly engage in it. And that's fine. I mean, if I were to, again, take a step back and borrow an example from an existing industry, um, 
you know, not, not everyone who uses a mobile phone really understands how a mobile phone is made or needs to understand the level of technology that goes into making a mobile phone. Um, you know, they, they're happy to use it as a consumer as long as it solves their day-to-day problems. Um, similarly, I think DeFi will, or, or the DeFi institution slash engineers and businesses that are in this space will have to create solutions that work in a black box in a way that abstracts all the complexity away from the user and the user only sees the need and the solution. And until that time comes, I think you're right that DeFi would not be mainstream. Uh, But my bet is that I think we have enough engineers and enough momentum in this space now that within a few years from now, and we are already seeing that, by the way, that we are starting to see the complexity of this being wrapped into very simple UX, very simple products that are coming forward and starting to give exposure to those products to the average Joe, and they are starting to benefit from that. I mean, in reality, Block Earner is is trying to attempt to do that as well, to really create a layer of you know, a familiar UX that you, you see in your banking ecosystem. Uh, but on the underneath, we are using some very complex and sophisticated systems that are available in DeFi and CeFi side of things. Yeah, I love the way you explain that. I think you're absolutely right. And it's true, like, if you have a mobile phone, like, people are not going to know to the nth degree how it develops, how it works. I mean, it's the same with the internet. Like, if you go and ask someone, like, how does Wi-Fi work? People are going to be like, what? Well, doesn't matter. I'm happy to use it, though, because it works for them in solving their problem. But I guess until companies you know like your company or whoever out there develop things in a way that your everyday person can use they're it's they're probably not going to have the adoption and they're probably not going to ask that too many questions right like no one's sitting there especially gen z is or whoever saying well how does the internet work i'm not going to use it until i know they're just going to use it because it benefits them and it's there's a need there so you're not going to dig too deep so I just want to sort of zoom out a little bit more of this conversation uh, because we obviously have gone quite detailed on, you know, CFI, DeFi, TradFi. Curious to know now a little bit more about the security impact of DeFi. Can you sort of explain a little bit more on your thoughts on this? Sure. And, um, you know, j- just to be clear, Carissa, uh, by, by security impact, uh, are we talking about uh, how secure is DeFi uh, or like, you know, how, how vulnerable is DeFi? Is that sort of what you want to gauge? I think anything and everything, any dirt piece of information you've got, I'm all ears. Cool. Uh, you know, the caveat here is I'm, I'm by no means a security expert as, as you and, and maybe some of your listeners are. Um, in general, uh, you know, as I just mentioned, uh, you know, DeFi has been around in some way, shape, and form for a few years now. Uh, and every year it's becoming more and more sophisticated. And, you know, there is technology that is developing around DeFi to support it. Uh, and every time there is, uh, you know, any kind of uh, vulnerability that is made aware of in the DeFi, you know, developer ecosystems, I think, uh, you know, the you know the ecosystems uh, or, or people in this ecosystem are quite... Uh, quite proactive to actually jump on through that and sort of fix some of those issues, as, as is the case with most of the technologies, right? Uh, you know, it takes a little while uh, to make it. Uh, uh, I mean, there is probably never 100% foolproof, but I think there is an acceptable level of quality and foolproofness that, that after which it becomes more beneficial than detrimental for humanity and at which you sort of allow it to uh, you know, sort of proliferate. And I think DeFi has already re- uh, reached that stage where uh, I think the good and the level of security that comes out of, of some of these protocols is quite robust. And the validation there is the years and years of, uh, I mean, when I say years, I mean, if last few years of it being live in the market and being open source to a large extent and yet not being able to, um, uh, yet not being in, in, yet not having any severe or critical vulnerabilities uh, uh, that you could have seen in in protocols that large, right? So in general, but the definition of it being, by definition, it's open source. A lot of people can view it. A lot of people try attacking it in various different ways. And as a result, it makes itself stronger. So the way in which they're constructed, uh, I think allows them to be uh, 
bit more robust than some of the traditional systems that have existed around. So certainly in saying that, it doesn't mean the risks are zero. Um, you know, I sort of joke about this internally when I talk to some of the folks, uh, you know, who sort of, you know, talk a little bit about risk. I say, look, every time I take a flight, I know there is a non-zero probability that I might not make it to the other side, but that doesn't stop me from flying. And it's a life risk, really, right? And so similarly, I think when you look at um, risks around smart contracts and you look at risks around, um, uh, you know, technology, I think there is a non-zero risk that something goes wrong. Uh, but at the same time, the ability to mitigate those risks, uh, you know, are quite significant, uh, you know, with time passing and having engineers look at these codes more often than not. Uh, and there are very few real examples where things went wrong quite drastically uh, in any of these relevant protocols. So um, overall, I think uh, we, are, we are at a stage where it's become a fairly mature technology uh, with a lot of room for experimentation. Uh, and over time, it's only going to get stronger. Do you think some of your engineers or security engineers or security architects are still like skeptical? Because I mean, security people, we're a skeptical bunch. Like everyone's guilty until proven otherwise in our eyes. Do you still get a bit of that like pushback, like when you are working in like, like product development teams or, you know, engineering or anything like that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you know, you you coming from a security background, you probably know this more than I do. Nobody wants to go out there and best, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, thump their chest and say we built a highly secure product that can never be hacked or there will nothing ever go wrong. Uh, I mean, so there is always the nervousness around what have we created and what do we not know that we don't know, kind of thing. Uh, you know, what what do we don't know that we don't know? Um, so so there is certainly uh, that element of uncertainty that we all live with and i'm pretty sure that's still true even in the DeFi space and i'm pretty sure there are elements of risk um, that we are exposing um, you know ourselves to when we build in some of these spaces uh, i think the bit that that allows the space to be a little bit more robust and gives the space a little bit better chance than compared to the other other more traditional technologies is the fact that it's more collaborative and it's more open and that allows for more participants to come in and critique it upfront, closer to the time of launch and closer to the time of making and make it a little bit more robust uh, to the best of people's abilities at that at that point. And that I think really differentiates this ecosystem a little bit from some of the other existing systems. Yeah, I absolutely think you're right on that front. And yes, no one should ever say that they've built uh, a system that is completely uh, can't be hacked or, you know, and, and no one, people, you know, people definitely should never claim that because there's, you can never fully have all your bases covered. Um, even if you're at a client side or you're on the services vendor side, there's always going to be that element there of risk. And you are right, using the plain analogy, there is that risk there that, you, you know, it, you may not make it to the other side. And, you know, it's, it's it's limited, but it's there. So I really, really appreciate your time, Aperva. I think that this has been a really great episode because, like I said, I still don't think people understand what all of these CFI, DeFi, TradFi terms mean. And I really want to bring you on the show to sort of just start that conversation small. What does all of this mean? And let's make sense of it. So I really do appreciate your time today. And I can't wait to get you back to go a little bit deeper on this topic. Sure. And and, and, and would love to. And, and thank you for your time today. I, I really enjoyed our conversation today, Chris. And uh, thank you for uh, listening in and sharing uh, all the CFID, FID mystification with your listeners. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. This podcast is brought to you by Merksec, the specialists in security, search, and recruitment solutions. Visit MerckSec.com to connect today. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.